and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Kova. And I'm Kikita Kaori. And this week, we are going to be looking at coastlines. Coastlines of Rokugan, what they're like, inspirations you can take for your games, and ways you can use them. It's part of our environment series that we're working on. We do have a little bit of news today. There is a competition going on that Court Games Pod is having for one-page adventures. I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what the results are going to be. Well, let's talk coastlines. So the main information that we have at the moment in Legend of the Five Rings 5th edition uh, comes from Emerald Empire, uh, Chapter 2, around about page 80, it talks about ports and such like. There, the, the coastline varies a lot in Rokugan, so there are a lot of different environments, really, when you say coastlines and environments, mm-hmm. there's actually loads of different environments, uh, which I believe you would like to talk about, given your, <laughs> <laughs> given your geology background. Well, yes. So, so when we talk about coastlines, of course, there are lakes, there are rivers, but there's also a very, very long coastline. Uh, it's 900 miles uh, in length. Uh, directly, as we've been told by the yep, book. north to south, yeah. and north to south, and yeah, I did study uh, the geomorphology of coastlines while I was in uh, and got my master's degree in it. So I'm kind of like excited about talking about yeah, and 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 <laughs> and there aren't all the kind of, there aren't there aren't rivers in the middle of mountains that <laughs> you need to complain about. It's it's mostly almost yeah. makes sense. It mostly almost makes sense. So if you're going to take some real-world analogies, in the south in Rokugan, you would going to have primarily uh, sandy beaches. And this would be in the Crablands and southern Cranelands, like around the Asahina provinces. Um, there's uh, the Asahina lands and the Yasuki lands extend in a peninsula. And it looks like a spit, uh, which is usually made up of uh, sand that kind of juts out from this coastline. And from the shape of it, it would indicate that the current runs from north to south along the coast of Rokugan, which is totally fine. In the U.S., this equivalent topography would be something along the lines of South Carolina and Georgia and Florida. I don't have a good analogy for for it in Europe, but uh, that's that's would be a, what it would be in the U.S. Now, in the central part, you have a mountain range that kind of butts along the coast in Cranelands. It keeps the Cranelands quite narrow to the to the coastline there, and they do talk about you know the white cliffs or the cliffs along that that area of land. So this has. This is elevated lands. The The mountains have raised the lands up and, and made these cliffs. And it would have topography similar to um, Dover in the UK, which is an old mountain range. The, the mountains in that part of Cranelands aren't huge. Um, they're worn, but they're still elevating these, these coastal cliffs. Yeah. And it's important to remember that you don't just have people living on the cliffs and looking down at the the sea far, far away. You do also have you also have communities that are down the bottom of those cliffs because there will be very often. It won't simply be sea and then this kind of 
vertical wall. Uh, there'll there will be old cliff falls and and erosion, and and so there'll be flatter areas down the bottom. So you will have fishing villages at the bottom of these cliffs. Sometimes you'll have people at the top of the cliff, and there's a way down, and then then you have your you actual kind of uh, fishing wharves and jetties and piers down the bottom and all sorts. So there's a lot of variety variety there. Right. Even though it's cliffs there, they don't have to be like no fishing villages there. They're, they are going to be there along the bottom, especially for these these old mountain cliffs. So in the central north part, you have Otosanuchi, the city of Otosanuchi. And if you just look at the map... The city of Otosanuchi looks like it sits on a river delta. There is a mysterious waterfall that sits in the middle of Otosanuchi. Sapun Hill is there, but the whole way it juts out in the sea, it looks very much like a river delta mouth there. And in the U.S., this would be uh, like Louisiana, but it's in a cl- it's in a cooler climate than Louisiana, but still, it, it looks like. Louisiana jutting out. So that means there's going to be lots of channels to the sea. It's going to be prone to occasional flooding, at least in the uh, lower income districts, um, that sort of thing. So <laughs> go underwater and global warming. What, what I was thinking also is that if you look at London, London is on an estuary, and that's not dissimilar um, an estuary is, is basically where – is this a river mouth or is this the ocean? And the, the answer is kind of right. yes, <laughs> De- <laughs> depending on what the tide's doing. It is, is kind of one of those two things. So that kind of also makes me think about that because London is also – has loads and loads of rivers, many of which are built over. Um, if you have ele- elevation changes, then you could end up with weird waterfalls and strange places, uh, springs and, and such like. But also a particularly high tide – and you're waiting. And and also you're flooding from down. So lots of interesting stuff going on there. Right, right. And then in the uh, northern part of Rokugan, you've got this uh, ragged end of this fresh and volcanic mountain range uh, occurring up in Phoenix Lands. So that's going to be – in Phoenix Lands, it's going to be a very steep, rocky coastline. Uh, similar to Greece or northern Italy, you can have fishing villages. They cling to strips of sand and stuff along along the edge of this. It can be quite lovely, but overall, the topography is going to be a lot of really up and down, steep islands and that sort of thing. Generally, because fishing is such a good way of making a living, yeah, you will find communities, and they will find a way. <laughs> yes, they will. So, like I've been saying, all these these areas are going to be very well inhabited because the the ocean is quite fertile. It's a good source of food, and when there's a good source of food, you are going to get loads of people. Yeah. So lots of fishing villages, larger kind of port towns, where if if there's a, a good access to the interior, either because of the mouth of a river or some other place where you could actually beat a big ship. So there'll be communities of all sizes up and down, all the way up to the imperial capital. Right. So what are those fishing villages like? And as I said, they, as you said, they can get to any size. Um, they will be generally built around uh, harbors, either naturally created ones or created around a man-made breaker. Um, in Japan, 
they were perfectly capable of making uh, breakwaters and seawalls to make their own little harbors where the coastline seemed amenable to it. Uh, in Rokugan, when you have Earth Shikinja running around, it's even easier. Yeah. Um, basically, it's it's essentially building a, a very large rock wall um, in one place or another, um, curved or not curved, or depending on your on your you know local resources and and population and you know how 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 many people have you got and how long are you willing to take uh, these things and some of these things are done over generations and some of them are done as great big infrastructure projects mm-hmm. which can also in their own way uh form i mean don't, don't, just, don't just think of this as scenery but these things can also form plots and uh yeah there, there, there can be all sorts of um shenanigans over you know do we you know, the, the village elders and the the daimyo having conflicts over how we're going to, you know, are we going to do this thing? Because we think it'd be a really good idea, but I don't want to do it. And so on and so on. There are just so many. Interesting right. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I'm going to build this spit. That's going to mean that I collect sand on this side, which means you don't uh, get the sand on your side. And now your beach washes away and I get a nice beach. That That's a totally real life conflict thing. Yeah, so given the distribution of coastline, as it were, mostly these fishing villages are going to be Mantis, Phoenix, Crane, and Crab, because they're the ones who have large amounts of coastline, really. Uh, especially because Mantis is uh, not a, a great clan. So although they will have their fishing villages, they won't be as, you won't have as many or be as big. But those are the ones who really have it. But the unicorn and lion, they do have river shores where much the same applies, and there are also lakes. And that and the difference between a fishing village on a lake and a fishing village on the ocean can very much just be what kind of fish do you catch? <laughs> yep. So there are three kinds of fishing villages or fishing towns that I thought we could talk about. Um, big cities will have docks and wharves and then the ocean front itself, at least usually, will be shaped into canals using walls along the sides of the rivers. That that reduces the flooding, and uh, um, especially for an established city that's been there a while, um, you, you would channel that into canals so it can flow without flooding your basement. Um, these ones are built for commerce. These these cities are built for commerce. They've got um, Lots of warehouses and dry docks. Um, they are primarily used for shipping or construction or trade or military, more than fishing, though fishing would also be done because it's such a great source of, of food. Uh, it's just that so much other stuff is going on that, that's like almost secondary to the other business. Um, the warehouses can even be built above the river itself. Um, so like a, a canal or little tributary can have a, a warehouse built all the way across it and then have pulleys and a hole in the floor to pull up loads and take them straight into the warehouse. There's some really great descriptions of warehouses and river commerce in Poison River. Yes. Um, 
the new L5R book. Yes, I mean, that, it, that it comes up a lot, in fact. And in, it's also an example of a port city or, or a city with a major port that's uh, not a coastal. It's actually up round about lionish unicorn lands the, in the city of the rich yeah, frog. city of the rich frog, yeah. So um, it's yeah, there's loads of stuff there, loads of inspirations there you can find. You also get the crowded, the right on the coast type fishing village, used when the stripper coast is narrow and the population of you know the, the fishing people is kind of high. So near major cities or in the Phoenix Lands, that kind of thing, you're going to get boathouses built right against the water or, or even over the water, where. The like you have the individual dock that's the first floor, and then the family home is above that. They can be built like very close together, side by side, kind of narrow. Because imagine you're kind of beaching a boat. A boat is long, but it's not very wide, and so you get these long, narrow houses all stacked up next to each other. So it comes. It can be very similar to the row houses of the major cities. And we have an example of here of uh, Ineno Funaya. Yeah, that's a city in Japan that's a fishing. Yep. And fish can be taken. You will have a market in that town where fish that were like literally brought in five minutes ago are now on sale. And so uh, people will will come from a little while a little while away. And that's going to be very popular because it's a, a an important source of food. Yeah, that uh, these villages—they almost look like um, houses, row houses with the garage on the bottom floor and the the home on the top floor, and you just pull your boat right into the garage. It's not dry docked or anything; it's built over the water, and then you live on the second floor above your your little boat. And we'll we'll have some. Sh- cool images in our show notes but it's not what you normally think of a a fishing village but it works very well for these really tiny crowded strips of fishing village there's also uh stilt houses so these would be built on broader beaches uh they'd still be they'd be built above the high tide mark but they're still built on stilts to kind of protect the house from storm surges um they are used when there is more space to build, like sandy beaches, they'd be more common further south. Um, the boats might be quite a long ways from the house because uh, often in these areas, the tide comes in and out along the way. I mean, the tide can go in for a mile um, sometimes. So these would be, yeah, the boats would be drawn up on the beach when not in use um, and not right by the house. Um, in these cases, because they're more spread out, they're more isolated, they might be further from any major town. Uh, usually the fishing fish are dried on drying racks and then the dried fish could be shipped all over the place. You can pickle fish, but it's more, uh, resource intensive. You need more barrels. You can't stick them in a I, th- I think also, if, if you're in a place where the tide can go in for a mile, that's a mile where you can't grow food. Uh, so you're going to be a mile from the nearest actual farming village, as opposed to the ones that are right on the coast, like the, on, on a beach. Because you, you, you could have farming, you know, 100 yards away from the beach. And therefore, you're going to have population right there getting fresh fish. 
if you're right on on this kind of these these spits of land and there's it's quite a ways away from the people who are doing the farming yeah you're going to need to dry your fish you're going to have fewer resources because you can't just pick up vegetables in large amounts to pickle things or, or the the kind of the, the things you need for pickling you can't pick that up so yeah you do you do the lowest tech preservation method which is drying your fish so mm-hmm. and salting yeah yeah so they have, they have to be much more self-sufficient <laughs> so cool i mean those are those are just different kinds of villages that you can have in in your in your rokugan they, they are all of the same kind but you also get different life in each of these different sorts of village depending on exactly how fishing is done so you can get there's there's net fishing and there's cormorant fishing which is kind of fun and the abalone kind of pearl diving fishing and 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 all sorts there's there's a lot of stories i mean this is a major way of life this is what you you know far, so farmers will be planting rice all day and it's worth knowing how they go about planting rice and and fishers are are fishing all day so there's all different ways to do that so so think that this all all comes down to what what do your character see when they walk into a village what are the sites around them? What are the activities? You know, if they're staying overnight or if they're staying for a couple of nights to deal with whatever it is they've been sent to deal with, you know, what are the activities that happen at this time of night? What happens at this time of day? And that, that can all lead into you know, giving the, the right atmosphere for, for a particular game. So gillnet fishing, you've got small boats with three or four people in them. And they're extending uh, chains of nets deep in the water, gill nets, and drag them as they go along to catch fish. So the very expensive nets would be made of linen, but that was that would be quite – that's high-end. They can make very fine nets and, and, and net very different fish. But most of them, they'd be made for – most of them would be made with hemp or rice straw. Uh, which is waranara or nikawara, or palm fiber even, depending on where they live. That's going to be you know, a, a big activity in that village is going to be mending and creating nets because that's how they make their living. They have floats which are made of uh, polonia wood for smaller floats or bamboo for big ones. Probably wouldn't get well, – modern day, they tend to use glass floats, uh, glass balls, but you probably wouldn't get that at Rocky and that would be quite expensive. They also have sinkers. So basically you have a floater at the top and a sinker down the bottom so you have a nice vertical net to catch the fish. And they'd be made out of lead. So they throw them out between these boats. So that's the image you're going to see. You're going to see these lines of boats with networks of nets between them and kind of rowing and, and pulling themselves gradually towards shore. And some you just have people like throwing nets, these kind of – they're throwing these circular nets into the, into the water and, and then dragging them up. And uh, yeah, sometimes they use scoop-shaped nets for rivers because uh, of the different, just to come the different geometry of where they are. Yeah, so so you're going to see you're going to see an awful lot of net mending. Um, you're going to see you know the nets being strung up everywhere for drying and mending and, and inspection. And then pretty much all the able-bodied folk are going to be heading out to the water, probably dawn and dusk, and high tides. Yeah, so what they're doing is they're trying to, you know, they're basically making a, a wall out of nets 
across the area. And then they are slowly making this wall and dragging it towards the shore and herding all the fish towards the shore and making them more and more densely packed within the area of the net. And then they use these secondary nets to toss them in and catch out, you know, a cone-shaped net full of these fish that they've compacted close together as they've herded them together. So it's it's pretty cool operation, but it takes a lot of people <laughs> and a lot of teeny tiny boats. Uh, and so if you've ever seen the great wave of uh, that famous uh, woodblock print, it's got these little tiny flat boats with about six people on, on each one, like huddling in this huge wave. Well, those are fisher, those are fishermen. Yeah. Using, so. using that kind of, doing that kind of gill net fishing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In addition, there is cormorant fishing. So cormorant fishing is uh, described very well in Emerald Empire, but basically uh, fishermen tie a, a string or wrap a metal band around a cormorant's neck that's tight enough that they can't swallow larger fish, but they can swallow little little tiny fish and um, pieces of fish. Uh, so that then when the birds go out and catch fish, um, they come back to the boat, they are forced to cough up the fish, um, and you know then they are fed small pieces of fish as, as their reward. So... They are wild caught. Cormorants are not generally they're wild caught. They can they do well. They can catch well, up to 150 fish an hour, which is impressive. Uh, they yeah. just that's 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 impressive. Um, this kind of fishing is where you're going to find in rivers and in shallow water estuaries, like Earthquake Fish Bay is a shallow water estuary, um, rather than the sea, um, because. Uh, of basically the density of the fish and 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 the fact that you in shallower water you can't use gill nets very well it's too crowded yeah so so in more open waters yeah you'll see more more of the gill nets kind of thing yeah right there's lots of poetry about cormorants uh it features in a lot of haiku they're very noisy and commercial birds so calling someone a cormorant is mm. a little bit of an insult <laughs> Oh wow! Now I think I know what the the Daidoji call the Yasuki. Oh, absolutely, they would. <laughs> absolutely, um, the 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 fishing there is often done uh, kind of dawn and dusk, where the fish are fish are up and feeding, and uh, the people who are fishing hide themselves from the cormorants while they are out, and then. They have some big lanterns to help attract fish to the to the light, and then um, the cormorants fish. And then once they've got their their gullets full, then the fishermen pop out, and the cormorants come to um, you know get their share. Yep, um, we have some images of of cormorant fishing in our show notes, so you can you can look through and see some some views of traditional cormorant fishing, which is uh, really cool and fun. Other kind of uh, very iconic uh, fishing method and very traditional is the ama pearl divers. Although they don't just go for pearls, they might go for 
abalone, pearls, lobster, wreath shells, different types of edible seaweed, and so on. There's a lot of so these are basically free divers who go quite deep uh, without any kind of equipment. Very often women, because they're able to handle colder temperatures better, but that can vary from place to place. But you know, the ama are very, very famous. And they can free dive for I mean, generally I think they it's the journey underwater for about a minute, but they can go down for longer depending on exactly what they're looking for and exactly the coastline that they're on and, and so on and so on. But that can be their, their whole working day, five to six hours a day. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly impressive what they're able to do and how long they're able to stay underwater. And uh, just we, 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 this kind of thing, well, surely you'd need like scuba gear and, and fins and no, just me, me and a knife. It's fine. Don't know where you're over. In the traditional villages, uh, you know, the men, as as you said, the the women are generally doing it. The men are, are manning the boats, and uh, and you know, basically, you know, supporting them. is It's very interesting uh, village hierarchy. I, I I think that they're cool. We all have some show notes in our for our podcast. You can read more about it. Yep, and that that's going to be places where the fishing might be okay there there are those some kind of high value resource so you know like pearls like abalone that kind of thing uh that's where that's going to be worth doing so right it's got to be on a on a rockier part of the shoreline yeah yeah let's see so another kind of um fishing or you know economic industry of these coastline is is uh, traditionally, uh, whale or or shark fishing. So I I don't know. For for me, this is a sensitive topic because you know the the fact is that there are areas in Japan still doing whaling um, commercially, and the methods they use are really horrible, and uh, it just totally freaks me out to think about it so um but to to speak about it plainly prior to the 1500s in japan whales and dolphins were consumed they were considered fish and they weren't considered any different than any other kind of fish they were mostly consumed when they grounded themselves um after the 1500s the harpoon was invented and harpoon whaling and shark fishing was done. But it was extremely dangerous. The people who were doing it, the whalers, were using the same tiny fishing boats uh, that they were using for fishing and basically hand-thrown harpoons with ropes. And it was extremely uh, likely to get you killed. In the 1600s, the town of Taji invented net whaling and that's kind of what you see if you've ever watched the cove or anything like that where whales and dolphins are driven into a bay that is sealed off with nets and then the whales are killed en masse however there are many stories about whales being spirits who protect coastal villages and who drive the fish towards the nets of the fishermen and allow the fishermen to live there's one fairy tale about how a whale was doing this for centuries 
you know, they don't have a good idea of a whale's lifespan. Uh, and then whalers from outside the village attack the whale, and the villagers prayed for the whale. And in their prayers and the whale's devotion, the whale came onto the shore and became a rock. And that rock cummy, uh, that rock spirit was, was the whale, and it protected the village forever. Given my sensitivity to the subject, in my Rokugan, I would restrict harpoon fishing to sharks and have it be a very risky and dangerous activity that mantis go about doing in general to get their shark shark skin armor. In my Rokugan, I'd have the Rokugan see whales and dolphins as benevolent or holy servants of the fortunes, and I wouldn't have whaling unless a whale like actually washed up on the beach. But you know, we we try and talk about what real life Japan is like too, and you know, your your Rokugan can can be different. Yeah, I mean, you, you could you could depending on when yeah when you when you can set the kind of uh, your version of Rokugan, whether they they've invented that sort of whaling yet and that kind of thing, but. Yeah, I, I'm. I quite agree. Just go after sharks. No one, no one likes sharks, <laughs> which we probably. Well, I like <laughs> sharks, but they have already established shark skin armor as being a thing, and it does make a great story for very, very risk taking samurai to go go get a shark to make their lord shark skin armor or something. So other things that you're going to find on the coast, apart from uh, the various types of fishing village we've already discussed, so we've talked about fishing villages, uh, but there are also going to be lighthouses. And lighthouses are very important because you need to know where the coast is so you don't run aground when you don't want to. So they're going to be towers with some kind of lantern. I, most of the time that is going to be fueled by oil, but it's not beyond the possibility that they're going to be occasionally fire kami where the lighthouse is kept as a shrine and maintained by a lighthouse keeper or a shrine keeper. Those are very often lonely places because the place you want to put a lighthouse is generally near where there are rocks that will eviscerate your boat. And they tend not to be good places for fishing villages or any other sort of village. So they can be very often very, very lonely uh, and, and isolated. But they're also very important structures that need to be maintained or people are going to get killed. So uh, there's a lot of possibilities for plots and scenery elements there that you can use. I would suspect the ones that are operated by Fire Kami are more likely to be around the big cities, especially anything around Otosan Uchi. That would be, I think, your most likely place. But they are going to be important places regardless. And all kinds of spooky... Interesting things can happen there. There's also, of course, trade. So we talked about trade cities uh, and dry docks a little bit. There's plenty of information about that in Emerald Empire, though, so taking a look at that. But uh, what are some features that you might see? We talked about a few. What are some features that you might see in um, coastal villages? Well, one of the more iconic images is those giant Tory arches in the water. <laughs> They're so pretty. They are, they are. So you have, you know, the, the shrine itself is effectively the water or the lake itself. There are also coastal shrines. Um, 
to Hamana, the fortune of fish and generous meals, um, Daikoku, the fortune of wealth, patron of merchants and farmers, Sujin and Isoda, fortune of the sea and the shore, and you also have fortunes of the various winds, the Kaze no Kami. And that's going to depend on which particular winds are most important for that particular village. Yeah. You're also going to see these these drying back drying racks of fish or seaweed, uh, barrels for salting and pickling or just collected salt. Um, you're going to see fish sellers with all kinds of seafood um, from squid and octopus, shellfish being sold by villagers wandering around with baskets. You might see like a gigantic tuna. Mm, some of those got really, really big. Yeah, you know, for for sale, um, you might even be a samurai sent to get a gigantic tuna. One of my favorite little ideas for a tiny campaign is you are samurai sent to bring a giant live tuna fish to uh, scorpion lands because your daimyo needs fresh sashimi for some reason. That sounds like an interesting, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Trying to babysit a fish. Yes. So together with uh, the lighthouses on the rocky outcrops that are going to be near the coast, near villages, um, and that, that sort of place, you're also going to have in those cliffs, you're going to have those sea caves, which can have all sorts of interesting secrets above and below the waves, which can range from, you know, hidden treasure. There are going to be, you know, maybe there's a monster there and that could be living in the cave either the above the water or below the water and so you may you may have to start considering how you're going to get into it and how you're going to operate in there and, and deal with the beastie once once you're there and lots of lots of lovely kind of interesting scenery scenery to find so uh, in addition to like CKs, another feature you'll find around coastlines is like a really really narrow paths winding along the cliffside edge almost over the ocean you know, with the sheer cliff on one side and the and the dangerous sea below so you know that's a very interesting setting if you happen to meet a cranky duelist or <laughs> anybody else you know you can have quite the quite the epic uh, duel over who gets right of way on a road that doesn't really let more than one person pass at a time. Uh, and, and in a slightly less kind of fraught kind of scene, you can have broad sandy beaches with kids playing or uh, beach combing for what the the last tide threw up, which is a, a slightly more gentle. Um, and indeed, you can have lone fishermen. You know, they had lot. They had rod and line fishing, uh, and with with simple bamboo poles, basically. Uh, but that that is a common feature along rivers, but also along the the shorelines, coastlines. Absolutely. So, um, I thought I thought I'd share my very favorite uh, Japanese folktale because it is it is a coastal uh, folktale. Um, and that is the legend of Tokoyo, or, you know, as it eventually gets mangled into the legend of Tokyo. Um, so supposedly this, it, the city of Edo was renamed Tokyo after this, this folktale. So long ago, Tokoyo was the daughter of a samurai, or Oribe Shime, 
who was banished by the emperor to a group of islands off off the coast. The emperor was sick, and he blamed Uribe. But Uribe was also in ill health, and his daughter feared that he would not survive out on those isolated islands without someone to take care of him. So she sold everything she had, and she went to look for him. But the fisherman was so afraid of the emperor, they refused to carry her to the islands, for the emperor forbade it. The fisherman would not even speak to her for fear of the emperor's wrath. One evening, she was praying at a shrine to Buddha, and she fell asleep at the shrine. And in the middle of the night, she heard the sound of crying. And she awoke to find a girl struggling with a priest. And the priest was going to push the girl off the cliff there and sacrifice her to the ocean god, who demanded an annual sacrifice. Tokyo offered to take the girl's place. Uh, And she dove into the ocean with a length of rope and a dagger in her teeth. And she swam down to the bottom. And... Down there, she found a sea cave with a statue of the emperor in it. At first, she was really furious for um, her father being exiled, and she wanted to destroy the statue. But she thought better of it, and she tied a rope to the statue to pull it to the surface. But when she started to swim back up, she was attacked by a great sea serpent, and Tokyo stabbed the serpent in the eye and then attacked it over and over again until it died. And finally, finally, she made it to the shore and she and the priest and the girl pulled up the statue and they carried her and the statue to town. When the statue was retrieved, the emperor got immediately better and realized that his illness must have been from a curse related to the statue. And so he freed Uribe Shime, and the father and daughter were happily reunited in the town, which was eventually named in her honor, Tokyo. So I like that story. Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether the, the naming thing is all that accurate, because Tokyo, when you actually look at the, uh, the kanji, it literally is just East Capital. Uh, but... The, the legend is a good one anyway, and, and absolutely is, is exactly what you'd expect. It's, it's, it's really great. For, we'd always have to talk about it in a, a coastal episode. So I think it's a fantastic legend that, that absolutely can be woven into uh, Rock Again. So we want to have a look at uh, what kind of mechanics, which mainly comes from Path of Waves because you could have someone who comes from a sea, river, or lake region, which will give them a water ring, plus one, seems appropriate, seafaring, plus one, and glory, 32, which I can only assume is because they have so many interesting seafaring tales. Yeah, it's better than an urban ronin. Yeah, clearly, because uh, the, the, if you've grown up on the river, you can have that. And then there was the time when I caught this massive fish, as opposed to urban, is like, well, there's this time I found a really nice tea house. <laughs> and I got thrown out of the best he had. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, whereas, and also, you end up with an awareness of trade politics, natural disaster, and the benefits and dangers of the water. You know how to swim uh, or pilot watercraft, and you know the local heroes and folk songs, and awareness of foreign customs because you are more likely to see 
someone uh, from place because they they can you'll have been in a port village when they were there. Yep. So in addition to you know the real life things and the mechanics of Alpha Bar. I, I couldn't really do an episode. We couldn't really do an episode on coasts without talking about the Nino. So Nino are mer people who live in the oceans off the coast of Rokugan. They have silver skin and scales. They are humanoid-ish on their top half, uh, but they do have fangs and long webbed fingers and fins, so they're not super humanoid. They also have a long fish-like tail. Uh, traditionally, they are considered one of the elder five elder races, uh, and their element, of course, is associated with the power of water. Yeah. Now, none of this necess- we don't necessarily know the origins or much about the five elder races in New Five R. Uh, we do see. Characters uh, or cards in the LCG that show up that are associated with these elder races, but whether they were inhabitants of Earth um, at one point or inhabitants of Sekaku, we don't we don't really have that kind of background. Yeah, yeah, we've not we've seen. Um, the Naga, they have shown up on camera in New 5R, but the Ningyo have not, to my oh, to my knowledge. They have shown up, the Ningyo have shown up in New 5R. They are still, one of them wet, became the bride of Shiba, the Kami Shiba, the earlier the Emperor Empire, and that still is happening in, in New 5R. Um and we talked a little bit about that in our Phoenix episode. Also, uh, their card has shown up. Yes. So yeah. in the card game. Yeah. But um, so the story I'm going to tell here about the origins of the Nino um, is from Old 5R, which may or may not be true. Yeah. In the history of the world, prior to humans coming to the Earth, Jikoku attacked the world. Uh, and the five elder races um, stood together to defeat them. Uh, at that time, the Ningyo took shelter in the sea, and they began living in castles beneath the waves and using pearls for magic. A great disaster befell uh, the five elder races. Um, again, what that disaster might mean in New 5R is kind of meaningless. Uh, but the majority of the Ninja were driven insane by it. They were made feral. They were also made immortal. So you have these Ninja, for the most part, there are exceptions, are immortal and insane. So there are a lot of legends. And these actually come from real life China and Japan. That eating the flesh of a Nino, eating the flesh of a mermaid, will make you immortal too. But you would become cursed if you did so in some terrible, terrible way. And in Old Five R, they had a bunch of different kinds of curses that could happen to you if you if you ate the flesh of a Nino and became immortal by that means. So. Whether that's true or not, it can make for a good plot element, so why not? <laughs> Absolutely. 
We have some ideas for adventures that might take across the, along the coast, things you can throw at your players. Because that's why we're here, after all. Absolutely, yeah. A strange being, part human, part fish, has been seen on the beach. The locals say she demands to speak to a samurai. She has a prophecy for them. But will, will your players be able to be convinced to listen? And if they hear the prophecy, will they be able to convince anyone to listen to them? And uh, this is taken from the legend of Amabie, and you can find more about that on yorkai.com. Another adventure we kind of talk, touched on is that you can say that the local lord has been called to give a gift of sharkskin armor. And the lord has instructed you, his samurai, to figure out how to go hunt the shark, which is the most dangerous catch. And of course, to get armor for it, it has to be a pretty big shark. If I was going to run something like this, I would definitely run it as a skirmish with a lot of fitness and seafaring checks for balancing on boats while you try and try and fight a shark. It, it could be a pretty challenging adventure. The local pearl divers are refusing to go diving because they claim that there is a monster under the waves, which may be an issue if the local lord very much wants their pearls that they've been getting. So, what could this monster be? Could it be a yokai? Could it be an oni? Could it be a giant octopus? Could it be some other thing? Could it be a rival village trying to sabotage pearl production? Someone's going to have to find out. <laughs> the strange sounds have come from the local sea caves, and the samurai must determine why. And if it is a threat, could it be a ghost or, or smugglers? But in any event, they only have until the tide rises or they will get trapped in the caves. So, so the rising of the tide in any of your adventures along the coast can be a big time uh, tension screw because it gives you 12 hours. You've got 12 hours to, to be in and out. Sometimes not even then. Sometimes you have something that the cave is only available at the low end of low tide. So you've only, maybe only got an hour to get in and get out. Um, I mean, we're not even talking about the the tidal land bridge between Crab and Crane Lands. Well, that's a big, big, big issue. You've got only this long to get across or you're going to be, be in trouble. So it's it's something uh, cool for you to work with as a kind of ticking time bomb, keep the tension high in your campaign. Conflict arises between a shrine who is hosting a very important member of the Kuge for an important Oceanside ceremony and the local villagers because of the smell of the drying fish. So somehow the samurai have to negotiate a truce so that the locals don't ruin the ceremony, but the villagers can still keep their livelihood. Yep. You can have an intrigue for that. <laughs> uh, let's see. A ship has been wrecked on the local beach. There is only one body on board, and that body looks like it is a sailor from a faraway land. But there are footsteps leading away from the wreckage. Someone survived. So the samurai needs to find out, was someone aboard? Who was aboard? What should be, what should be done with them now, now that they have survived this ship, shipwreck? And it could be anybody from any culture. It could be... A, it could be a Rokugani, but what were they doing there? 
Maybe they were a Rokugani who had been in a foreign land for a very long time and come back. I mean, the the possibilities are are endless and could lead to an interesting campaign. And uh, finally, we're going to end with the fishermen have caught a Ningyo, one of the mer people, in their nets. The Ningyo has been wounded. The samurai must see and determine what they're going to do. Will the Ningyo attack them to get back to the back to the sea? Will a foolish lord? look to use this Ningyo for immortality? Is this one of the feral Ningyo who is vicious and, and dangerous, or one of the few remaining non-feral ones? So if if the Ningyo that was trapped was important, you can have a whole bunch of Ningyo now determined to attack the village to get their, their companion back. So it could be quite quite the standoff. Anyway, hopefully that's some ideas for different kinds of adventures that you could have uh, on your in your coastal setting. I'm hoping in a future podcast we can talk about boats as well, but we certainly used our time today. Yeah, I think we have. Uh, uh, we have in our show notes, we're going to have lots of links and links to images for all of this for um, inspiration. So do check that out if you're able. But I wanted to give a call out to our Court Games Network, including the L5R LCG podcast, our Live from Tokyo podcast called Tokyo of the Five Rings, though they haven't had a new episode for a while, uh, and our two actual play role-playing podcasts, Crimson Gold Agonies and Fortune and Strife, as well as our friends at D20 Radio. Our content is funded by the Discord Community Patreon, which supports our editing costs as well as our website hosting. And that's where we keep things like summaries of our podcasts, uh, RPG tools, and more. For our patrons, we also have special bonus content like Adventure Seeds, early access to our actual play podcasts, bonus bonus podcast content, and more. Online, you can find us at our website at courtgamespod.com. On Twitter, we are twitter.com slash courtgamespod. And we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames. But that is it for us this week. This is Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I've been Korva. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy.